When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ledgerwood and this is Lit Up, a podcast about books, writers, life and love and all things literary. Roxane Gay is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. She's the author of the books Aiti, An Untamed State and the New York Times best-selling Bad Feminist. She's here today to talk about her book of short stories, Difficult Women. And we also have to say that she has a forthcoming memoir, Hunger, that will be out later this year. She's also the author of a new comic series from Marvel called World of Wakanda. Okay, Roxanne Gay, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I have read your work for a long time. (laughs) Thank you. And a fabulous mentor of mine, Ben Percy, Mm um, kind of shared your work with us all in about 2010. These stories I found out from listening to you on several other interviews were some of the first you wrote. Yes. Um, I guess you're in a position now where everyone wants to know everything that Roxanne had to say at any <laughs> point in her life. That's horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> but what, I mean, what's it like to put these out in the world, um, having had them be kind of some of the first themes that you were um, preoccupied with? Very gratifying because it was the first book I tried to sell. and It's some of my oldest stories with a couple of new ones sprinkled in. And I love these stories. And so to see them finally make their way into the world is gratifying. And the response has been overwhelming. You know, we often hear as writers that nobody buys short stories, nobody reads short stories, and so I had very low expectations. I was just like, oh, it's a nice book, and hopefully it will do well enough that my publisher doesn't regret it, but I didn't really hope for anything more than that. And so to see how many people are gravitating towards the book in these early days is just <laughs> awesome. And I've heard these stories described, which I thought was really apt, as both brutal and kind of delicate. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they are, each one, you know, is so powerful in its own way. Um, I also heard, you know, like this title, Difficult Women, is loaded, um, but it was to have another title. Yes. Um, What was that title and how do you think it's being, um, you know, how are people... absorbing this new title and has it taken on a life of its own yes the original title was strange gods based on the last story in the collection Mm. i just thought that was 
an interesting title and it had a sort of eerie vibe that I thought would encapsulate the collection really nicely. Uh, and then a book came out last year called Strange Gods, which first got me like, thinking. Damn. Well, it was a very different book, so I could have still called my book Strange Gods, but it did get me thinking about the title of the collection with my editor, Amy. And I thought about all the women in this collection, and I thought, hmm, they're all difficult in one way or another, either because people assume they're difficult or because they have had difficult lives or because they are indeed difficult. And so difficult women felt like a really provocative and interesting container for all of the stories. And so far, people have been really intrigued, I think, by the title. And of course, as society has wanted to do, there are many questions about, um, well, aren't, isn't it really that the men in this collection are difficult? Which is true. But it's very interesting that a book that centers women, people still want to ask, what about the men? Which I don't care. So uh, it's been fun just seeing people interpret the book and have thoughts about the book and just engage with the title. Well, there is a sentence early in the book that I felt kind of described the feeling of it for me. And it is, above her, ceiling panels had rotted into something dark and unrecognizable. And when I read that, you know, after I'd read the book once, I was like, that to me is what's going on everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, would you say that these women have been pushed so much that sometimes they're unrecognizable to themselves? Yeah, in some of these stories, these women have been just pushed beyond all reason. And I think that when you get to that place beyond all reason where the things that you've been enduring are unfathomable, that you become something unrecognizable uh, to others, to yourself, and the challenge is to work your way out of that place. And some of the women in my stories do work their way out of that place, and some don't. It seems like um, I've heard you speak about the collection and saying um, that it's so important to acknowledge the world we live in and the mm. way women are treated. And these stories um, really show us what some women experience in terms of sexual abuse, trauma. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a bit about how I found fascinating, I found a parallel between Lydia Yuknovich's work and mm -hmm. yours about almost how physical being um, kind of pushed to the brink means that um, you almost are searching for someone to inflict pain on you as a way to heal? Yeah. I think for some of these women, external pain is a way to temper the internal pain or the emotional pain. And in many ways, they go looking for trouble, uh, thinking that there's a balm in suffering uh, and that one suffering can alleviate another. Absolutely. And I'm always interested in the ways in which we seek out pain for whatever reason. And you can see that in some of these stories. Yeah, I'm def I'm thinking of the mom, the mother who's lost her child. Yes, break all the way down. Yeah, that was incredibly moving and kind of distressing story. You know, wishing that your husband will hit you. Mm -hmm. And when he doesn't, going out to find a man who will. Yes. And how sad it is that there are so many who are out there. Yes, who are happy to give her what she needs. Yeah. And that story 
she's inconsolable with grief. And in many ways, she wants to be punished because she blames herself for her son's death, even though she's blameless. There's really no one at fault. It was an accident. But it's hard to reconcile that when you lose a child. And so this looking for pain in other places is just her way of trying to survive the grief. Mm. Another theme that I found like bubbling up for me was um, of small women. And I mean of either women not wanting to become small in their own lives mm-hmm. or thinking of the, themselves in that way. And then on the contrast of men either despising kind of a wife that's become a, a kind of shrunken, um, kind of meek version of herself mm-hmm. or being or being so angry at women for could you kind of add to that or because there's several times where those words are actually mm-hmm. kind of in there what did what does that mean oh I don't know that what it means per se but I know that oftentimes women close in on themselves and try to make themselves smaller that we try to make ourselves take up less space because as women we're supposed to just shut up and look pretty and there are a lot of different things that force women to become small and to try not to take up space and to be quiet and to become almost invisible. And I do think that oftentimes men can put women in those positions to make themselves small and then resent the women when they become small. They resent this this thing that they've created, and so they take their anger out on women for doing exactly what they were sort of told. And it's interesting to play with that dynamic. And of course, it's not a, this is not a thing that happens to everyone. But in some of these stories, I just thought it would be interesting to explore. Mm. There's one story that I found particularly kind of strange and interesting, and it's about a priest. Oh, yeah. And he pretended, you know, I, I'll try and find the quote, but it's, um, oh, what he hated was how the parishioners had faith. Mm-hmm. And I laughed in this, you know, in this story. I mean, I really disliked this man. Um, and just thinking back to how you were going to maybe name the book, um, you know, Strange Gods. Strange Gods. Mm-hmm. Is there a relationship with God that you're having in this book? Um, or what did you want to say about that? this type of man? Oh, uh in that story, I really was just thinking, what would it be like if there was a priest who <laughs> had a girlfriend? Because I think the priesthood is a fascinating, fascinating lifestyle. And I think it's so, I'm Catholic, and I think it's so unreasonable to ask priests and nuns to take a vow of celibacy. I don't think that brings anyone closer to God. And so I wanted to write about a priest I imagine to be human and to have needs and to also just be a bad priest <laughs> you know he's he's lacking faith himself but he goes through the motions and to have to be a spiritual leader to people who are true believers when you know you're not a true believer I think that must be an agonizing place to be in and so I just had a lot of fun with that story just thinking about what would it be like to be a bad priest also there's a kind of a freedom in this the girlfriend he has mm-hmm. is so aware of his hypocrisies. Oh, absolutely. She just doesn't give a shit. No. I love, I really liked it. her. She's, you know, she sees him for exactly who he is. And he, I think that's why they're together because 
he needs someone to see him, to see his failings, because his mother thinks he's a saint, his parishioners think he's a great priest, and here is this one woman who sees him who he, for who he is and who loves him anyway. And that's always very appealing when someone loves you for exactly who you are. Mm. Another um, theme in the book, or I'm wondering when your fascination with twins oh. um, <laughs> began. You know, it's interesting. I didn't realize I had a fascination <laughs> with twins, but ever since the book came out, a lot Everyone's of people have been like, saying, what's with twins? And I don't know. I didn't, it wasn't deliberate, but I, I am intrigued by this idea that there's someone out there who has your exact same DNA and with whom you sometimes have a really interesting and intimate connection where you think alike and you speak alike and finish each other's sentences. I, mean, I just love that idea of having a duplicate and what is that like? And so there are uh, two stories, I think, with mm. twins in them, just because it was interesting to me. Well, the way people kind of get fused together, I'm thinking of the first story that's um, about two sisters uh-huh. who go through, a, you know, an abduction and a, a terrible situation and how that experience, they are their own, their relationship with one another is, they cannot be separated uh-huh. because of their experience. Yes. What is it about these... Like we talked about being pushed to the brink and the people that we go there with, that kind of fuses these bonds in these ways. I think it either fuses a, an indelible bond or it tears you apart. And so, I, in, especially in I Will Follow You, I was really interested in sisters who would go through an abduction and assault together and just be forever bonded. And so I even begin the story with one of the sisters coming into the other's bedroom while she's asleep with her boyfriend and saying, we're going to Reno. And the sister's tired and cranky, but she's like, well, okay, I guess we're going to Reno. And that was just a very seductive idea that there are people out there for whom you will do anything without question in in healthy ways. And so I wanted to explore that. And I wanted to explore how, because they have this shared trauma they can understand each other without having to explain it in the ways that they have to explain themselves to the rest of their family, to their loved ones. And so these sisters, you know, their bond was a very interesting bond to write and explore. Throughout the stories, um, power dynamics are kind of so important in how each one is portrayed. And one that made me feel sick and reminded me of Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mm -hmm. even though I know he didn't rape anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess we have to say that on the record. But Mm -hmm. um, is it, what's the title of that? La Negra Blanco? Oh, La Negra Blanco, yes. I was struck by just this, this moment we're in of trying to kind of acknowledge this uh, white privilege mm-hmm. and the fact that you wrote I mean it's I mean this is centuries this is the world for, since the beginning but what's it been like um, having people respond to that story now in the climate ring seeing as you wrote it you know many years ago yeah I wrote that story as a retelling or a reinterpretation of Nella Larson's passing mm-hmm. and uh 
I wanted to play with this idea of being biracial and passing and how someone who was racist but still drawn to black women would respond when he realized that the object of his affection was the very thing he's always wanted but not allowed himself to have. And so that's where that story came up. And uh, it's been interesting to see people respond to the story and just be horrified. And I, I just think, wow, you're not paying attention. That, I mean, like, this, this is, is the world we live in. And a lot of people have very interesting wants that they don't allow themselves because of societal strictures or things that they perceive as strictures even now and, and so I think it's a provocative story for people to engage with and to think about race and interracial relationships even though there is no relationship uh, between this man and um, this woman uh, he perceives there to be a relationship because she's a stripper and he is a rich man and he thinks therefore he can dictate the terms of their engagement and he can't but he certainly tries thinking of another uh, interracial relationships your novel an untamed state mm -hmm. which i similarly read in kind of one sitting devouring it but also needing to kind of put down and like take a few breaths mm -hmm. and i felt when reading that and this, something akin to what I felt when I read A Little Life, oh, Hanya yeah. Yanagihara's book, mm -hmm. and I thought, and I've been thinking about this a lot since, about your and her, um, tell me if I'm wrong, intention to have us live in the real world. Yes. Like we all are, you know, sometimes my mom is like, could you have some lighter things on because the world's so dark? And then I'm like, this is the real world. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of us, have to, we have to acknowledge it. Yeah. I think oftentimes we want to look away from the darkness of the world. Of course, you know, there I, a lot of people say my writing is dark, and in general it is. But there is lightness there, mm. both in my novel and in my stories. Uh, there's always hope. And some of my stories don't have any darkness in them at all. And I think it's important to acknowledge that too, but I'm willing to look into the darkness. And that's, I loved A Little Life. That is uh, one of my favorite books, and I hope it becomes a movie, even though I think it'll be a very difficult book to translate because it's so long and it's so dark and it's relentless. There's just, it's relentless. And, but I, that's what I was thinking of when I wrote my novel. I wanted it to be relentless, I wanted the reader to feel like they were drowning in this kidnapping and then the aftermath and the betrayal that Mireille experiences. Mm. And I think that oftentimes it's that kind of immersion that allows us to understand and have more empathy for the very real things that many women endure. And in the case of a little life that men endure as well. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, absolutely. I, I like to stare into the darkness and just see what's there. <laughs> There's a funny part um, and I'll read it out. Uh, you make friends with the ugliest kid in your class and you make friends with the loneliest kids in your class, the ones off by themselves. They will be the best friends you've ever had and they'll make you feel better about yourself. Like, I think the first time I read the book when I was like, holy shit, we're going there, I was like, not like I did not find that amusing. And mm -hmm. then the second time I was able to go, holy shit, like... <laughs> 
is this the kind of weird shit we say to our kids? I think some people do. In that the, in that story, um, the narrator's mother just is a kook. And she doesn't even really have a role in the story except for this piece of advice that she gives the daughter at the end. And I, as I wrote that, I was just thinking, oh, it would be great if it, you start reading it and you think, oh, she's giving this really touching yeah. advice about, you know, reaching out. And then at the end, there's this like little selfish twist. And I just thought that's so fucked up and that was funny to me good I'm, I'm glad kind of like off. my second reading of finding it funny wasn't you no, know it was funny. was okay I mean I intended it to be funny yeah 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 and I thought it was funny I just thought because sometimes you know we always have these very ideal ideas about parenting and the advice that we get and I think that most of us get very good advice but sometimes we just get nutty advice from our parents and I love to play with that and I love to think about the nutty advice my mom gives me sometimes and you know, I just wanted to bring a little bit of that nuttiness into that story. Well, yesterday I Skyped with my mom and she had just seen a Katherine Heigl movie that she found really funny. And she oh, said, she's like, you know, men like more skin. You've got to <laughs> stop wearing those turtlenecks. I'm like, mom, it's freezing here. And like, it's give January. Me, give me a break. Like she, I love it. She written some notes. Oh, that's awesome. Especially uh, for a Katherine Heigl movie. I don't yeah, know that yeah. anyone's ever taken notes about her <laughs> I know. Uh, well, you, oh, um, you've had an unusual experience because you're Haitian. And yes. um, you went to Exeter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the boarding school and I'm wondering I've heard you on a on another round the podcast that I love, I love that um, speak about what it's like being um, you know a black woman in white elite spaces and I really appreciated that conversation because as a white woman I don't have to think about that mm-hmm. very much and what was your experience at Exeter and how I mean, do you have great friends from that time? Oh, God, no. No. Oh, I not. do not. Uh, Exeter academically was wonderful. Yeah. And uh, I learned so much. It was harder than college. When I got to college, it was a breeze. I was like, oh, yeah, I've done this. Uh, socially, it was a bit of a disaster. Uh, because I was shy, I am shy. I was awkward. I still am. So I guess not much has changed. But I was also dealing with some trauma and I didn't know how to articulate that and so I was just a mess and I was impo- I was a not very popular and I just said weird things and I did weird things there was a period where I only spoke backwards and I like wrote my homework backwards but it's a boarding school and you're paying a fortune so they just tolerate your nonsense uh, <laughs> I it's what's interesting to me is that now that I have become more visible I hear it from my high school peers all the time and they remember me completely differently than I remember wow. me. They remember me really nicely and really well, which is good to know. I guess it lets me know that I wasn't as much of a basket case as I think I was and that I was able to function socially. Uh, but it's interesting. I went back last year for the first time wow. and since I graduated, which was, oh, my God, this year we're doing our 25th anniversary, our 25th reunion, which I shall be skipping. And I've not gone to any of them. And Exeter reunites every five years, which is adorable. Um, But yeah, it it was going back was bittersweet. It was in many ways nice, but some of the things that I remember being terrible, 
about Exeter were still terrible. Like, I think they still have a very serious diversity problem. Mm-hmm. They're working on it, but I, it's just some of the things have not changed. But some have. And it is, I mean, I would not hesitate to send my child there because I know what to look out for. Mm-hmm. And I, I know what to check in about with them if I were to send them. And I would just probably just fly there every week. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> just get a drone. <laughs> yeah, basically. Just <laughs> to hover above their bed. <laughs> Don't worry. Call me in five minutes. <laughs> I mean, you said that you had experienced a trauma. Was was that, was going to boarding school part of like your parents' solution to try and help you? Well, they didn't know. Okay. Uh, but my dad is an engineer, mm-hmm. and he built tunnels. And so when the project is done, we would go back to Omaha, where the company was headquartered. And I had gone to three different schools in three years, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, and I was done. I just said, I want to go to one school for mm-hmm. four years. I don't want to go to th- four different high schools. And looking back now, I'm just like, girl, you are so spoiled. <laughs> like, ooh, wah, you don't want to go to four different schools. And my parents sent me to Exeter, which it's ridiculous, but very cool. And so that's why I went. And I had a cousin that also, had also gone to Exeter. And so I had applied to other boarding schools, and I did get in. Um, but I chose Exeter because uh, my cousin Claudine had gone. And uh, so it was a known quantity within the family. Mm. It was an interesting, and yeah, it was interesting. When did you start being called a difficult woman? Oh, I think always. I've always been perceived as difficult because I'm moody and I'm very picky and very weird and uh, quiet and stubborn. I just have a lot of horrible personality traits. And so I'm often considered difficult, but only by the people who know me. Um, you know, I'm very pleasant, like out in the world. Yeah. But you know, my family calls me difficult. Even over Christmas break, I was with my parents and my brother and his wife and the, my niece, and they were all going to go do something. And I just decided I didn't want to go. I didn't. I just didn't want to go. And my dad was like, "Oh, you know, Oksan, you are being very difficult, <laughs> like your book." <laughs> <laughs> And I was just like, yeah, very funny, That's Dad. it. Yep, <laughs> correct. That's right. Like my book, which I'm going to stay home and read. Bye. Bye. <laughs> um, another difficult woman who, you know, we've, well, not I have always loved, but, you know, people like to call difficult is Madonna. Yes. And you, you went to her house. I did. Um. How was that experience? And does the kind of transcript and interview reflect how you felt when you were there? Yeah, it was very interesting. I was terrified. I, I've turned down a lot of celebrity interviews before yeah. because I just, I, I'm too shy and just didn't like, Ugh. but how do you say no to Madonna? You can't. And especially when she specifically asks for you. And so... I decided to suck it up and just go, and then she was 90 minutes late, which was hilarious. I knew she would be late, because she was doing something for Showtime, and I, I, I was just, 
every time I've read a celebrity profile, they're late. So I was very emotionally prepared. And her um, publicist and her day-to-day assistant were very kind. And we actually had a really lovely chat in her living room. You could have watched a movie oh, we that co- time. I mean, watched a movie, cooked a meal, baked <laughs> some cookies. Uh, but it, the time flew. It did not feel yeah. like a thing. And But I was so nervous. I was so nervous. And I was like, don't be dumb. And I think that when you have been successful and in the public eye as long as Madonna has which has been for wow almost 40 years Mm. now it's fucking crazy Um, she's been asked everything and so I didn't want to ask her stupid questions and so I had a list of questions and I didn't really ask any of them and her publicist had told me she really prefers conversation and so I decided to just treat her like a normal person yeah. and to not like be starstruck or anything. So I just played it really cool. And we ended up having a really good conversation. And it, it went really well. And I just kept swallowing my nerves. And I was really, I was intrigued. Because you always wonder, um, is this person the way they present themselves? And she's exactly who she presents herself to be. She's very intelligent. Uh, I think she's very genuine and calculating at the same time. Mm. Just an intriguing combination. So I I don't delude myself into thinking that she was acting natural, but she wasn't acting unnatural or forced either. And I I appreciated that. Something I loved from the interview that um, I hadn't heard before, um, well, was this idea of, almost because she's a woman, why wouldn't she keep creating her art? Mm-hmm. I definitely got a sense. And I think sometimes we think that of really successful people. You're like, haven't they made enough money to stop? Mm-hmm. As if that was ever the reason they were creating in the first place. Absolutely. You know, I think we do hope to be compensated for making art and we deserve to be compensated, but that's never what is the driving force. And... I noticed in a lot of the interviews that I read before having a conversation with Madonna that a lot of people are very interested in how long is she going to continue to make music and go on tour and dance and just be sexy. But I'm sorry, if you can pull off a onesie and high heels at 58 years old, then you should continue to do it. She looks amazing. (laughs) I, I don't know what she's... Well, I know she has a gym in her house. I read that. And... So I know what she's doing. She's working her ass off to stay fit and to look flawless, as she always has done. And and so I think if you've got it, flaunt it. Just do it. And so I thought it was really interesting that people keep asking, like, there's a shelf life on making art and that the creative urge would just sort of disappear. Um, so I wanted to ask her about that, and I loved what she had to say mm. about that. And it's true. We don't ask our male creators when they're going to stop as often as we ask women. Um, and she was very, she's keenly aware of her age and the ageism that she faces, I think, as a pop star in an industry that loves people to be 17, 18, 19, mm-hmm. you know, up to 25. And then, well, we don't know what to do with you. Uh, you have a wrinkle. Oh, dear. Well, it brings me to another point you've talked a lot about, and that's this cannibalizing of the self, how women are asked... I mean, having worked in women's magazines, like I was at a point in our meetings where I was trying to like dig so deep into my past as like what could I mine 
for a personal essay mm-hmm. and that that question of where is the you in the story where is the you in the story and that's a hard one to i don't know the i don't know the answer um but could you talk about that and also how um how you make decisions as to when you're going to write nonfiction and really talk about your opinions and why you have them from your perspective and then when it's time for fiction, which is where you reserve any judgment. Yeah. Um, so I think that women are often asked to cannibalize themselves. I think we're treated intellectually as if our only resource is ourselves and that we can only really draw from experience, that we're not capable of research, investigation, and inquiry. And it it is a little frustrating, and that's why I encourage women to, if you want to write about yourself, please do, but don't feel like that's the only thing Mm. you're allowed to be an authority on. Because men allow themselves to be an authority on absolutely everything, including women. I love when men tell me all about women and women's bodies. It's fun. Like, really? You haven't seen the inside of a woman's body ever. I know the inside of a woman's body, so shut up. And so I want women to have more of that sort of blind confidence, Uh, but perhaps with a bit more substance behind it. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what propels me in terms of making decisions about fiction or nonfiction. I think with fiction, I just have an idea. Or I see someone walking down the street, and I think, what is his life? And I write that story. Uh, With nonfiction, there's a different kind of urgency there's something I want to respond to. There's something I want to comment on about the world that we're living in and the world I wish we were living in or that we should be working toward. Mm-hmm. And I, I use nonfiction to try and get at that. My nonfiction is generally about trying to find answers to questions I have. And it's really my thinking through these questions that compose most of my essays. Well, John Mark actually shared with me, he's your publicist who's yes. in the room, yes, he is. Um, that your PhD is in rhetoric. Yes. And that, I mean, obviously you're so persuasive in your arguments, but I mean, in the time we're in, can you, does your rhetoric kind of red siren, just is it going off all the time? Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, ugh, we're in a news bonanza right now. There's so much happening, and we're seeing a lot of rhetoric from all sides of the political spectrum. And so, yeah, the siren is going off and saying, we have to pay attention, we have to pay attention, and we have to look beyond the rhetoric and see what's really happening. Um, Because rhetoric is persuasive, and I think it's necessary. But um, we also have to look for more substance beyond just a very persuasive appeal. We have to look at what can we do to change the way things are? What can we do to prevent certain things from happening? Like right now we're seeing um, the Senate and the House trying to repeal the the Affordable Care Act, which is such a bad thing for so many reasons Mm -hmm. and for so many people. And there's a lot of rhetoric being bandied about Uh, And that's important, but we also have to look at the actual lives that are going to be affected beyond the rhetoric, beyond um, the Republicans saying that this is a broken act and it puts undue burden on health care providers, which it does not. And then the other side that is saying millions of Americans are going to die. 
well, yes, millions of Americans are going to die, but let's quantify it in more specific ways. Let's talk about the very real ways in which real Americans are going to be affected, that women are no longer going to have um, unfettered access to birth control, that people with pre-existing conditions are not going to be able to be insured or they're going to be paying exor exorbitant prices, that more people are going to go bankrupt because of their bills. I think we have to just start getting very, very specific about what's going on. Well, and similarly, I've heard you talk about uh, the Women's March that's happening and how this the symbolism of it is beautiful, mm -hmm. but what are going to be the material outcome? Like, what can we do that actually helps the people who are going to be most affected by yes. policies? Yes, what are we going to do on January 22nd after the march? Um, I think it's important to start thinking about that and to be thinking about that while also being supportive of the march uh, because I think both are needed. I think mm -hmm. we need both symbolism and more material support for resistance to Donald Trump's um, administration. To lighten things up a bit, okay. uh, I read that you are obsessed with DJ Khaled. Yeah, <laughs> and you like to I know am. everything he's doing. I, I do. I follow him on Chapter all day. He talks to his baby. Hello, son. You're beautiful, <laughs> handsome. What a good boy. Exercise time. Kyle, Assad, Assad. You're happy today, Assad. Mm. It's so sexy. Just makes you happy. Have you read his book? Not yet. I bought it for my my person and. I thought it was hilarious. I mean, she thought it was hilarious. And um, I haven't read it yet. I'm excited to read it. I went to Isawan Books in Los Angeles to buy it, and they didn't have it, and I was too ashamed was to it ask. Was it sold out? Or they no, just... they just didn't have it. And so I tweeted, just joking, I went to Isawan, and I was too ashamed to ask for the book. And they said, oh, we'll, make, we'll get it. So they have it in stock. And so when I go back to L.A., I'm going to pick it up. I'm sure there'll be a rush on it now. Oh, I, I hope so. I want to get it, too, because these are some of it's the... It's called The Keys. The Keys. And <laughs> some of them are... I mean, the... Like went on Amazon when I went to look at it, and I was like, "What is this?" And I was like, "I should get him on the show. I oh, want to. I really want to talk to him." Bless and, up. <laughs> and one of the ones I love is, um, well, one of them is "Secure the Bag," which mm -hmm. I don't. That isn't one of the ones I particularly love, but to glorify your success. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really important. And I'm wondering, how do you glorify or kind of? I don't know, make, enjoy this moment. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't had a moment to enjoy the moment. I just, I'm always touring. So, I mean, I don't know. But that's a, something I need to think about. And I, that's my 2018 plan. I, that sounds horrible. Like, I'm making a plan for fun. But I'm making next a plan year? for fun. Yeah, next year. I have two books coming out this year, so... I'm touring this book generally until like May. Yeah. And, and then, then in June, I start touring Hunger. And before we, before we wrap up, can you talk about Hunger and how, um, I mean, this, this decision I read, I, I think I heard on a great um, Brad Listy's podcast, mm -hmm. you were talking, you know, your mom has said like, why are you going, why are you, gonna put yourself out there like this mm -hmm. um was there a, a moment that you were like 
I have to, this book has to come out of me, or has it been a slow burn and you're still trying to be brave? Oh, I think it's been more of a slow burn. I, I you know, I came up with the idea. When I came up with the idea, it felt necessary. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, necessary for me. I, I would never delude myself into thinking a book is necessary for the world. But, um, you I know. I think that is, I think other people would say that <laughs> about it. <laughs> Oh, that's well, awkward. No, I know, but I think I think uh, you know a lot yeah, of yeah. I get that. Um, I I do. I uh, can't deny the ways that people gravitate toward my work and find my work resonant for one reason or another. And I think this is another one of those books that will resonate with many readers. Uh, I think that we just need to see a different kind of writing about the body, and. Uh, it's not better or worse than any other kind of writing. It's just different. It's more about lived experience rather than like a journey and a triumphant story. It's more about like a work in progress. And so that is what has always appealed to me about this idea. And, you know, I, it's just a difficult book to write. And uh, it's finally coming out and I'll just be done with it. And it'll be such a relief. They just have it out in the world, and people re- will respond or they won't. I'm really nervous. I don't know that. It, I don't know that people are going to love it, but I don't know. Whatever. I'll write other books. <laughs> you can't worry about. I mean, I don't. It, from reading, hopefully, all of your work, I don't get a sense that that's a place you choose to live in for no. long. You know, no, no, worrying. I what? don't because I, I'm not writing for. I, I like external validation, and I think every writer needs that to know that your work is doing something useful in the world or that it's entertaining people. Uh, but I'm going to write anyway. So I would have written this book regardless. Mm-hmm. I just, so yeah, I would have written it regardless. Well, I think we should, I should let you go out into the world and <laughs> maybe like have look at the sunshine and like have a moment of like you're I'm going to watch a movie yes people adore your work (laughs) and thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us Uh, it's a pleasure to be here thanks for more about this interview and about lit up in general visit us at thelitupshow.com follow us on instagram and twitter at lit up show and of course please don't forget to subscribe on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.